You can take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. If you are a guest here and a Bible is intimidating to you, you should be able to find a Bible in the seat back in front of you or in the tray in front of you on the seat back there. And if you want to turn to the table of contents, that is a friend to find your way through a Bible, you will find Philippians in the New Testament. And uh, that is where we will be this morning. If you do not have a Bible, uh, it would, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you. Um, if Bibles keep going missing here, that's okay. That's a problem we're, we're happy to have. Uh, take that Bible with you. It would be our pleasure to have that be our gift to you. Today we're going to continue to look into more of the life-giving truth God has for His church in Philippians 2. Over the past couple of weeks, this church um, has... Uh, given our attention to this passage, which is Paul's instruction to the church in Philippi about what it means to live worthy of the gospel. We actually started in the end of chapter 1. You can flip back there. You'll notice in verse 27, this really is the thesis statement that the Apostle Paul is making to the church here when he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the rest of what he had, then he writes is really kind of explaining and unpacking what does it look like, what does it mean, for us as Christians in community together to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, we learn that living worthy of the gospel of Christ means that we're going to stand firm in one spirit. You can see that, uh, verse 27, 28, 29. Firm in one spirit, with one mind, we will strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And last week, we looked at the raw materials of what makes up Christian unity. What, what creates Christian unity? What are the building blocks God has given his church to create and to maintain Christian unity. And what we learn in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, is that uh, gospel doctrine is the raw materials of Christian unity. The encouragement of Christ, chapter 2, verse 1, the comfort of God's love and our shared participation in the Spirit of God, that is the stuff that gives us, that makes Christian unity so valuable, so worthwhile, and so deep. While all that may sound good, the question, though, is, is Christian unity really something that we can experience? Is this just kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff? I mean, doesn't the Apostle Paul know that we're people and we like to fight? We'll find reasons to fight. We'll find reasons to disagree and be irritable at each other and argue with each other. And What hope do we have of really achieving and enjoying Christian unity when there are so many things that are trying to tear us apart? Things from without and things even from within our own hearts. Our own self-interest, our pride, right? Those are the things that Paul warns us against there in chapter 2. Uh, those are the things that will melt only when we turn our attention and our affections to Christ. And that's where Paul points his readers in chapter, chapter 2, verses 5 and following. He gives them a hymn. It really is a poetic hymn, probably sung by the ancient church, to focus their attention on the cross work, the, the wondrous work that Jesus has done for us in, self, in accomplishing salvation. Again, you might say, well, this all sounds good and kind of churchy, kind of Christian-y, Christians getting along, having unity. But doesn't every organization hope to have that? Doesn't every group try to have that? I mean, doesn't the local knitting club try to have unity? I mean, I don't think people get together in their local knitting club because they're looking forward to sparring with their knitting needles. They want to have a good time together, kind of unity. Aren't we just kind of Christians kind of doing our own version of that? We're not. Christian unity is unique. It's distinct. It's based on gospel doctrine. The local knitting club or the local gun club or whatever else, those local clubs that are out there, their unity is not built with the raw materials of gospel doctrine. As Christians, ours is. 
So, why does all this matter? Well, that's what Paul starts to explain in our text, which is chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. I'll read it aloud and you can follow along there in your scriptures, whether in print or on screen. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The reason Christian unity is so important is because it's one of the ways Christ's church fulfills its mission. Christian unity is important because it's one of the ways that Christ's church fulfills its mission. I've reminded our church family of our mission statement the past couple of sermons. Our mission statement says it this way. We exist, as Highlands Baptist Church, we exist to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. The Apostle Paul tells his readers that Christian unity is going to make them so that that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And here's the reason why. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our reason to exist as a church family is to display God's glory through the gospel of grace. That sounds very much like what Paul is saying in Philippians 2.15 That we as a Christian community, living with Christian unity, what is the effect? We will shine as lights in the midst of a dark world. Christian unity is one way that the Church of Christ shines as a light and displays God's glory in this sin-darkened world. So, what can we learn then about Christian unity as we strive to fulfill our mission as a church family together? Really, there's just kind of one main idea from this text this morning. And then we'll unpack it together. It's simply this. Christian unity is our God-enabled work. So let's work. (laughs) Christian unity is our God-enabled work. So let's get to work. Reflection on Christ, right? Remember where Paul has just been writing. He's just finished in this text, chapter 2. He's just finished leading up into verse 12, this hymn, this song about Christ, about how he humbled himself, how he was... God, he is God, but yet he laid aside the exercise of those rights and privileges and became a servant and he humbled himself to death, even a shameful death on a cross so that he would save us, accomplish the great saving acts of God and as a result, God has exalted him so that at his name, every knee should bow. That's this grand hymn that Paul has just written about that flows then into verse 12 where he says, therefore, based upon all of this, and my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Here's his instruction, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We shouldn't overlook that Paul urges his readers to obey. Uh, Christian unity is not just something that we feel. Paul is urging his readers to obey. What happens when we don't feel Unified. We don't feel warm and fuzzy toward one another. Well, we are called to obey. 
Paul urges them to obey not just in his, in his presence, but also in his absence, as if he knew that his presence in that community would remind them of who they are as Christians and, and what has bound them together in Christ, the gospel. But he says, even in his absence, much more when they don't have the effect and the strength of his presence as the apostle that gave them the gospel and has raised them up in the gospel and has sent them out in the gospel, he wants them to obey. And we live in a world that elevates and exalts the notion of living by our feelings. It's the stuff of songs. It's the stuff of dramatic moments in movies, kind of getting sucked away with our feelings. We're kind of victims of our feelings, carried on into doing whatever it is that that the storyline has. It's as if our society thinks and believes that our truest and most noble way to live is our so-called authentic self, quote-unquote, is by being driven and living in accordance with our feelings. But friends, we are not just feelings. We are Christians. And God has called us to be thinkers. God has called us to set our affections some places. That's, and that's an act of will exercised on our affections. Do our affections matter? Absolutely. The scriptures are full of it. God doesn't want heartless worship, not at all. Friends, we all live in a world that is indoctrinating us with this. And we as Christians, we're affected by our, by our culture more than we care to admit, probably. And so it's wise for us as Christians in this modern age to be aware of these threats and to be mindful of them so we can see those weeds of feeling-based living, driven living, that takes over and be able to pull those out. I don't want us to try to shirk off the weight of Paul's instruction, the simple instruction of obey, do this. As Christians, you need to work, at, work towards your unity that we don't just shrug that off and say, well, not for me because I just don't really feel that. Not for this group of people. I need to find a church family where I'm going to feel unified with. Friends, Philippians chapter 2 dispels that notion. Philippians 2 is teaching us as a church community, we work for unity. We work for it. Here's the good news. God is at work in us in our working. We'll get to that in a little bit. But notice what Paul wants his readers to obey. In verse 12 and 13, he tells them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the reason why. For it is God who works in you, who, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Does that verse trouble you? Does it kind of cause you to kind of be puzzled a little bit? Like maybe when you read this passage, you're thinking, hmm, does that mean we're supposed to work for our salvation? Like we can earn our salvation from God? Is that what Paul is telling us? This seems rather troubling. If you're, if you're not a Christian... Uh, you should know that, that Christians with the Bible uh, teach a, a message of good news that is you cannot work for your salvation. You can't. You can try your best, but you're always going to fall short of impressing God with your best efforts. Well, if that's not what Paul is teaching here, then what does he mean? One important principle that we must use as people who read, by, who read our Bible, and by the way, I hope you are a person who reads your Bible, okay? I hope you are. If, you, if you've kind of kind of stopped doing that. Let me just kind of give you a little shot in the arm, uh, a booster shot. We're all familiar with booster shot language, right? I'm going to give you a booster shot of encouragement to read your Bible, okay? You don't have to read the whole thing tomorrow, but I would encourage you to open your Bible somewhere tomorrow and read God's Word. People who read their Bibles, we must understand that the best way to interpret God's Word is making sure we harmonize it. So God's Word is a unified whole. It is not going to contradict itself here and then somewhere else. So in other words, the Scripture does not, what Paul is writing here in Philippians 2, does not contradict what Paul wrote other places in Scripture, such as Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, when he says, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
What that means is you cannot work for your salvation. God is the one who justifies. He is the one who declares you righteous. It's not through your works. Or what Paul is writing in Philippians 2 does not contradict what he writes in Romans 10 in verse 10 when he says, For with the heart one believes, not works, believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, not works, and is saved. So whatever Paul is saying in Philippians 2 can't contradict what he wrote in Romans 4 or Romans 10. So if Paul is not saying that we have to work to earn our salvation from God, what is he saying here in Philippians 2? Well, we need to interpret this phrase with everything else that he's written about. He has been writing to this church family in Philippi for their need for social harmony in the Christian community, for Christian unity. He's been exhorting them to live worthy of the gospel, to live unified, to strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. This command then is written not to individual Christians. So when we read the word, let me see here, I've got to find it. He says, when uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, we hear highly individualized words there. Like this is your individual calling as an individual Christian to do. But actually the words that Paul uses are plural. So if you're Southern, this is where you get to shine. He's actually writing to the your there is y'all. You all need to work out your salvation. That's what he's saying here. It's you together, church community, you together need to work out this salvation. Paul is not telling individual Christians they need to work for their salvation. He is telling a church community he is driving at Christian unity again. He's writing to this church community and telling them that as a community, they must work out their salvation and they will do this by obeying what he has written to them about pursuing Christian unity. He's telling them what the effects of their salvation are. Work it out. Work it out. Let the results flow out of what you have in Christ, salvation. Let it be seen. Let it be displayed. That's where he's going to go to a little bit later when he says you're going to shine as lights in this dark world. What does that mean? You're working out your salvation. What? Christian unity. He's not giving them a checklist item to begrudgingly obey. Paul is telling them to live out the gospel, to live out who they are, God's people. How are they going to do it? Well, they're going to do whatever it takes to foster and restore and maintain the health and integrity of their Christian unity. And he's given them the building blocks, the raw materials earlier in this chapter. Paul is actually going to give some specifics about what it means to work out their salvation. Look at verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We'll get to that in a little bit later, but for now I want us to understand and appreciate that Christian unity is not accidental. Sometimes I think we kind of treat the scriptures as magical because it is spiritual. I mean, God is doing things in Christians that we can't do ourselves. So there is, in a sense, well, but I don't like to use the word magical because magical has this idea that if you can just say this incantation the right way, and I know I'm waving a wand here, you know, imaginatively here, that, that you know, something is going to happen that's, that's amazing. And God is not magical. He is real, he is spiritual, and he does a transforming work in us with his word, by and with his spirit, and he is the one that produces Christian unity. But friends, it is not accidental. It is something that Christians work together. It takes deliberate effort from us as a Christian community. That, I hope, isn't a burden for you to bear. I, I, what my aim in saying that, the effect that I hope that has is that it, builds, it fills your heart with hope. That God believes that we, as Christians, can build and work and achieve and experience Christian unity. He's given us what we need in Christ. The question, then, is are you working with others here in this church family for unity 
Or are you working against it? Paul goes on in his instruction and tells them that they should pursue unity with, look at verse 12 and 13, with fear and trembling. Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The fear and trembling that Paul has in mind here is the fear and trembling which is an attitude of humility and submission in God's awesome presence. Have you ever been in the presence of something awesome? Husband, stop glancing at your wife like you're awesome, okay? But have you ever been in in the presence of something awesome? Maybe it's been some landscape in nature like the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or something like a starry sky at night and you see the, the, the swath of the Milky Way. Have you ever been in the presence of something awesome and there's this kind of reverential awe that kind of is in your heart, in your soul, this, this sense of grandiose and reverence that it evokes and calls up within you? What a lot of people would call something that is like worshipful. The fear and trembling that Paul has in mind, that's what he has of being in God's presence. In the Bible, when we read a story of someone having an encounter with God, we see in those stories again and again that they respond with fear and trembling, different demonstrations of it. Like, for instance, in Genesis 17, we're told how Abraham had this, God was giving his covenant to Abraham. God says, Abraham, I'm going to make a promise to you. And Abraham fell on his face, it says in Genesis 17. Or Balaam, I know, kind of a strange guy, talk, walk, and as I'm riding on a donkey who eventually talks to him. Well, Balaam is in the presence of God. The angel of the Lord is there standing with drawn sword. Balaam catches a glimpse of this. And what does Balaam do? He falls, he bows down and falls on his face. Or Joshua, Joshua in chapter 5, he realized he's talking. There's a stranger. He calls out, who are you with? Are you for us or against us? And then Joshua realizes that this is the angel of God. And Joshua, it says in Joshua 5, he fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. Or Ezekiel, which is full of really strange word pictures of visions of God's glory in odd ways for our imaginations. But Ezekiel, he sees an appearance of God and we're told in Ezekiel chapter 1, when he saw it, he says, and when I saw it, I fell on my face. How does the fear and reverential awe of God fit into the church working together for Christian unity? I mean, really, it says that we're supposed to work out our salvation with this kind of falling on our face, fear and trembling. (laughs) You're like, really? That's happening here in Highlands Baptist? God's, we're supposed to have this kind of reverential awe what's going on here? How does this work it out? Well, Paul reminds his readers that because they are the people of God, with the abiding presence of God, God is the one who works in them. When we are gathered together, we are, in a sense, in the presence of God. Because we are God's people with God's abiding presence. Remember chapter 2, verse 1? Encouragement in Christ, the love of God, participation in the Spirit, that is ours in Christ. As we are gathered together in God's, we are God's people with His presence within us, there should be this sense of awe and reverence with what's happening as we've gathered together. This means then that fellow church members, we shouldn't be viewing each other as simply a source of irritation or frustration in each other's lives. Boy, can't that happen quick? (laughs) We can just get irritated, frustrated, disillusioned, disappointed with one another. And we start to see each other as obstacles, as impediments, as frustrations, as drift socks. We're kind of dragging along through life. We've got to put up with her and put up with him. Paul is revolutionizing. He wants to revolutionize the way they view each other 
through a gospel lens, a gospel lens of, man, work out your salvation. What do you mean, Paul? Pursue Christian unity with a sense of fear and trembling because God is the one at work in you. God is the one who works in us. Verse 13, and he is working in us for his good pleasure. That should give us all hope and encouragement. Building a healthy community is hard work. Sometimes a frustrating work. Sometimes a weary, exhausting work because we're fighting the, our own internal traitor and we're of our flesh and we're also fighting obstacles of sin in this world around us. But we can have confidence and even a sense of awe and wonder as a church family that God is the one who is personally present in us, with us. He initiates, sustains, and will one day complete the work of salvation that he started. That should give us all hope. Now, there's some good theology in these verses about how the Christian life works. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But to summarize, Paul is saying that we work because God works in us. And this is one of the mysteries of pretty much every Bible doctrine that you're going to find. There's this mystery of God God has responsibility upon us to do something. He expects this of us. There's a responsibility upon us being accountable to a God, to, to God. But at the same time, God says, you can't do it without me. And there's two ways that we can, we can fall into a ditch, right? We can go too far in one either of those directions. But for, for right now, just understand that we are able to work for Christian unity because God works in us for his good pleasure. So, what relational obstacle are you faced with, with maybe in this church family, with one another? Maybe I, I don't have anything specifically in mind. I don't. I don't. But I'm just assuming when you've got this many of us together, there's going to be problems here, right? Between some of us, somewhere, somehow, sometime. When that happens, we should understand that God has called us to work for Christian unity and He is the one who has promised and assured us He is working in us and for us, for His good pleasure. Now, we can excuse our lack of working, right? You could read this verse and say, ah, God said he's at work in us. Don't feel it. Off the hook. Like, no. God says he's working in us. I guess he's not doing it now so we can fight. No. We're not off the hook. Because Paul says, work it out. Do this. And then he encourages them with, you're going to be able to do this because God is the one who is working in you. God is working in us, so therefore get to work. Paul's aim here isn't to discourage their faith-filled obedience into passivity. Paul's aim here is to encourage and strengthen their work by assuring them that what they do matters because God is the one working in them. Stand with fear, stand in fear and trembling with the reality of that. So having this awareness, this mindset, is very important. It keeps us humble because we can't pull it off, right? You, if you hear from this, these series of messages on Christian unity, you can do it kind of all on your own. You've, I've failed miserably or you have failed miserably in hearing or it's a failure on both our parts. You can't. It keeps us humble. God is the one at work. But it also keeps us dependent upon God to do the work as well. Psalm 127 says it this way, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And you're like, well, hang on. Who's building the house? The people who build it or God? But that's the wonderful mystery of Christianity, which, by the way, if you're not a Christian, here's one example of why I believe the Christian faith answers the complexities of life in the most nuanced, in-depth kind of ways that satisfy the true needs of your heart and soul. 
Christianity does not just give pat answers to, to big problems. It really works itself into those nitty-gritty areas of the deep issues of life. Here's an example. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Do you need to build? Yes. But who is the one who's taking those efforts and making, making the effect come to pass for his good pleasure? God is. How does that happen? I don't know. I'm just a guy here reporting to you what God has said. I don't have the answers to that complexity. God hasn't revealed that, but he's promised us that it happens. This awareness of God's work energizing and enabling our work is captured by the psalmist again in Psalm 90, verse 17. The psalmist is uttering this prayer, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and do what? And establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Friends, this is the spirit that we must have here at Highlands as we strive together to produce and enjoy and experience Christian unity. It's the work of our hands, our hands building with gospel doctrine, chapter 2, verse 1, but ultimately the favor of the Lord our God must be upon us. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, what are we working for? You say Christian unity, yes, but what is the effect of it? We are working together for God's good pleasure, it says. God is doing this for his good pleasure, which, by the way, that's a good speed bump for our ambitions, for our own self-interested ambitions, which can get in the way really quick, can't they? Even the best of our intentions can suddenly be derailed with, you know, with our own self-interests. And Paul, again, just puts a speed bump there that, listen, Christian unity is not everybody doing what you want. It is for God's good pleasure. He's accomplishing something for his pleasure in us as a church family. What is God's good pleasure? Keep reading in verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. God desires his people to be marked by Christian unity because this gives us a compelling testimony in our, in our, with our counterparts in our highly divided antagonistic society and our divisive society. In a world where everyone is fighting, the Christian community should be marked by a gospel unity that defies and silences the arguments that surround and control our counterparts in society. We as God's people, it doesn't mean that we have nothing to fight about. No, I mean, some of you are like, you're through, can I just use a silly illustration? Some of you are like gluten-free. Some of you are keto. I don't even know what some of those things mean. And you are convinced about that. Some people fight about that. We don't. Why? Because we have other things that are important for us to accomplish in this world. You can be vegan. Go, okay? You're gluten-free. Did I mix things up here? Or keto. You can do that, but that, we're not fighting about that. Why? Because we are united in Christ. We are a gospel unity. We, we are a gospel community marked by gospel unity. That's real. Jesus said it this way in John 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love will look like something. It will look like Christian unity. Jesus explains more of what he desires for the unity of his people in John 17 when he prays this. I want you to hear the words of unity in this, okay? I know this is kind of a, a big, like, well, it's Jesus praying, okay? So hang in there, right? I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's the shining lights in the dark community, right? Dark world. What is he praying? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I give to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. In Jesus' prayer there, Christian unity was supposed to be the, the, the bullhorn the, that, that's shouting and displaying the glory of God in Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. That He is the sent one, saving sinners. This is how, God, how Jesus prayed that unity would have the effect in the Christian community. This is why Paul writes Christians in Philippi to pursue it and work for it. Do you see how God intends to use Christian unity to advance the gospel of Jesus? That's why it matters for us. Our ability to accomplish our mission as a church to display God's glory through the gospel of grace will be either helped or hurt through our measure of Christian unity. Do you believe this? It's not all butterflies and cupcakes though, right? We live in a real world. It's tough out there. This is why Paul commands and warns them away from grumbling and disputing in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and dispu- or disputing. I love how the realism here. He knows these are real people. They're going to grumble. They're going to dispute. But he tells them to turn away from that. Grumbling here refers to whispering complaints or talking in secret against someone and making negative comments about others behind their backs to do them harm or to make yourself feel better. Or disputing, one commentator described it this way. In this context, it means quarreling and debating in ways that are divisive and raise doubts. When the Christian community argues and complains, we are diminishing our ability to display the glory of God. So again, my question is, are you helping or hurting the unity here in this church family? If you're hurting, let me encourage you. You can do something so much better and help. God is at work in us. So tying all this together, we could read and understand this passage like this. Working out your salvation, our salvation, verse 12, as a Christian community, means that we should do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 15. doesn't mean we don't have reasons to grumble, but we won't do it with grumbling. Something greater binds us together. The relationships between Christians should be without blemish in a world where relationships are warped and twisted, verse 15. What we want is when unbelievers walk in these doors and observe and us. And by the way, if you're not a believer, well, I hope this is the effect that you've had today. I hope that they get a little taste of heaven on earth, a little, little taste, a little appetizer of it. Paul adds another phrase in verse 16 to explain more fully how to live like lights in this dark world. How are we going to do this? Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here again, we are reminded that the raw materials of Christian unity are gospel doctrine, this word of life Paul uses, holding fast to this word of life. The word of life is a reference to the life-giving message of Jesus. It's the good news of Jesus. John 6, verse 66 to 68, Jesus used these, said these words. After this, many of his disciples, he's been preaching about he, the bread of life, and he is the one who gives them what they need most. And after, many, what, what, after they heard this, many of his disciples, people who had been following him, turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words 
of eternal life. The words of eternal life that Jesus taught are the words of life that Paul refers to here, that the Philippi community that we as a church family must hold fast to. What were the words of eternal life that Jesus taught? Well, in John 6, Jesus said he was the bread that came down from heaven. He taught that to enjoy eternal life, you must embrace and depend upon him like you do each day, like you must depend upon food and drink for your physical life. Just like someone must eat and drink to sustain their physical life, so Jesus offers himself, his life, his death, his resurrection as the spiritual food and drink that gives eternal life. Do you embrace Jesus like that? Are you a Christian? If you're not, what's keeping you from feasting upon the eternal life that is offered to you by God in Christ? These words of eternal life about Jesus are what we as a church family must hold fast to, which is why we preach the gospel, it's why we sing the gospel, it's why we pray the gospel, it's why we read scripture passages that remind us of the gospel. It's because it is the words of life. And as we do that, our Christian unity is going to put on a shining light show. Have you ever been to those? Right? Disney is kind of famous for doing these laser light shows and spectacular displays and the whole crowd pack in there like sardines in a can and they all ooh and ah over it. God intends for us as Christians to kind of be putting on a light show display of the gospel and the world around us by God's power at work in them, drawing them, is going to give them eyes to see and savor Christ as, a, as the one who is the Lamb of God to take away their sin. So what's the result of the product of Christian unity? Paul shows us in verse 17 and 18. We'll finish here. The result of Christian unity is joy and gladness. This is good news, right? Look at verse 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The joy produced by Christian unity is rugged and robust and resilient. Consider the context of what Paul is writing here. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. What is he saying there? He's admitting even if he is martyred, even if he is, his life is forcibly taken from him because of faith in Christ, because of his gospel efforts, there is still joy. Which, by the way, again, if you're not a Christian, the world is... is is enticing you and promising you some version of joy. Everybody's pursuing happiness. But the problem that we all face in life is that everything the world offers always falls short. It always just, just doesn't satisfy. We're, we're always looking for more. We're always, we're always still thirsty. Paul is writing about a joy that even if his life is taken, a joy continues on, a joy that, and a gladness that is not destroyed by the worst this life can offer, which could be the forcible taking of your life through martyrdom. Even if Paul's life is taken, he will find joy. And this is, shows us a little bit of how important Paul considers Christian unity. He could go to his grave with a glad heart, being reassured that the Christians in Philippi are united in Christ and advancing the gospel, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He will go to his grave with a smile on his face with that assurance. That's the powerful witness and testimony of Christian unity. He invites them to join him in this joy and gladness. Will we believe that? Or do we think, no, man, you want me to work together with him, with her? Have you sat down and listened to that? Have you, friends? There is joy in this. Let's put on a laser light show of the gospel. 
Gospel joy is what gospel unity produces. Let's believe God about that. I think we generally do. I think we do. But if your hearts are just kind of lulled and kind of lagging in belief, let me just encourage you. Trust God. Believe that it will be joy. Christian unity is the people of God made by the gospel of God holding fast to the words of life that will bring us eternal joy. I'll ask the music team to come forward and get ready to lead us in our hymn of response. How has God spoken to us through this passage of Scripture? What is he calling us to do, to think, to confess? We're going to sing a song and then we're going to observe communion together right afterwards. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful and a solemn reminder of the gospel unity that God desires for us as his people to display and enjoy. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, We who are many are one body. Because of this, we all partake of the one bread. I'd, I'd love for us to kind of consider this like kind of a fresh start, wherever you are in your perspective on Christian unity. I know we're going through a pastoral transition. Maybe you're just afraid. You're kind, of, you're kind of holding people away because you're not sure what the future is going to be here at Highlands because of the unknowns ahead of us. Friends, let me just assure you, God is the one at work in us for his good pleasure. I'd love to encourage all of us to lean into one another, especially in these days. Let's, let's be working for Christian unity even more with our hearts fully assured. Let's let communion, we're going to observe together here in a minute or two after we sing, let it be kind of a fresh start of this is our church family. We are a family. We are united in Christ. John 6, the body, the bread of Christ, it's symbolized by the bread, the blood of Christ's death, symbolized by the juice. We take this as one because we are one in him. And let's have our hearts fully assured that through faith in Christ, we can put on a light display of the gospel of God that will really be dazzling in a sin-darkened world. Let's pray.